0: Good morning, church. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Genesis 22. We got a lot that we're going to try to cover this morning, and I look forward uh, to walking through this, this conversation and to address this particular subject matter this morning. I, I want to take some time here on the front end to continually remind you of just the greater context with which we're having this, this conversation, that really, all of last year, when we were navigating the crazy dynamics of a pandemic, and cultural turmoil and all the different things that we were trying to process, that our answer as a church was, let's just fix our eyes on Jesus, right? That, that's where we drive our focus. If we can just keep our eyes fixated on him, then we'll be able to navigate all the different things that were swirling around us. But as we moved out of that focus of last year, part of what we recognize is that if you focus on Jesus and you keep your eyes directed in him, you're, you're going to be different, You're going to be transformed, you're going to be changed, you're going to look different from the world around you. You're going to live a renewed life, which has really been the point of emphasis for us all of this year. What does that renewed life look like? How do we stand out from the world around us? And we've used the book of Romans as our guide so far in that conversation to, to look at some of those characteristics of devotion, discernment, delight, and all the different things that we've had a chance to consider as we've walked through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. But we've also taken some time to look at these different sub-series, different examples, different stories and narratives that bring that sort of renewal to life. We looked at Naomi and Ruth, and most recently we've been looking at the story of Abraham and Sarah and their family. And that's really kind of been the point of focus, is not just what does it mean to live a renewed life, but what does it mean to have a renewed family? What does it look like to experience that sort of renewal in the home? And and we've really tried to zero in on some of those primary building blocks of family, specifically uh, what you find with husband and wife, what, what you find with mom, with dad. Last week we had an opportunity to talk about the grace and joy that Sarah experienced in motherhood and how we can experience that in our lives as well. And so today we, we move down this progression of looking into a renewed family by considering not just uh, husband and wife and mom, but today we'll look at what does it mean to be a renewed father or, or to the importance of being a dad within a home and demonstrating that sort of faithfulness. And so uh, we'll be able to kind of wrap up that whole sub-series discussion next week and we look at it comprehensively in the legacy of Abraham and Sarah. But I really look forward to this conversation today because honestly it's one that I've been burdened with for a while. Um, It's a a subject matter that just has kind of been placed upon my heart in a lot of different ways and a lot of different capacities, but but more so over the last few months. Uh, But I want to give you some context as to why I've been thinking about it more and and praying about it more. Some of it really started pretty innocently uh, in, in just casual observations of going through ministry Uh, For example, I remember when I was serving as a missions pastor uh, at First Arlington many, many years ago, one of the things that I saw and that wasn't uncommon to observe was that more often than not, it, it was more common for women to engage in the realm of mission than it was for men, right? You just saw a little bit more interest, a little bit more involvement. And it wasn't this massive discrepancy, but it was a difference. And, and I kinda just took note of it, didn't think a, a whole lot about it. Could have been something specific to that particular church, could have been just relevant to the world of mission as a whole or, or this part of the this state. I mean, I didn't really know, but I did notice it. But I could tell you that as time progressed and I moved beyond just First Arlington and even into this church and in other areas of ministry and other conversations, I've seen that trend continue, right? It, it's really not confined to just one church, It's not confined to just the area of mission, but really kind of ministry as a whole, you tend to see a stronger response from women than you do from men. And this has been proven out in a lot of research, in a lot of studies. In fact, Pew research has shown that when you look at the composition of evangelical churches in our country today, it's predominantly women, 55% to 45%. And, And you also see this just in overall engagement. Pew research has also demonstrated that women are much more likely to attend weekly services than men. And and so it's not just personal experiences, it's it's kind of a trend that you see in culture, which has led me to kind of ask this question throughout my tenure in ministry, which is, where are the men? Where are they? Now before I dive deeper into that question, let me stop and acknowledge there are some tremendous men in this church in particular, and in ministry as a whole. Incredible examples of of godly men who demonstrate Christ-like characteristics in their service and in their engagement. And so uh, I am deeply appreciative uh, for who those men are, and and you know who you are, and you guys have an opportunity to demonstrate that in so many different ways. And so uh, today is an opportunity to demonstrate some level of gratitude for that, but while we are grateful for that example, I would also tell you it's a rarity. It's not as common as it should be. Right? And, and so a lot of times, this question of, of where are the men is not even really a question of geography that's related to church attendance, like are they in church or not in church? Are they involved or are they not involved? But it's really kind of a deeper question of not just where are they, but what kind of men are they? Right? That's really a, a larger conversation that we're seeing, not just happening within the world of church, but, but really society as a whole. Right, there's a lot of dialogue right now on this conversation about men, and masculinity in particular, and what does it mean to be a man. And it's a really interesting conversation. All right, I came across an article that was written in Christianity Today in June of 2018, and it spoke to this particular subject matter, and it was drawing from some research that was done, I believe, in the University of Colorado. And in this research, there was this study, and the participants were asked to describe the typical male. Right? Just offer up some characteristics of the typical male that you know, and all the characteristics, the majority of the characteristics that the majority of those participants offered were negative. Men are typically aggressive, forceful, egotistical, greedy, and on and on it went. Very rarely were there references to positive characteristics, right? that, that men typically uh, are absent of these qualities like compassion, and kindness, and goodness. And that study, I think, really does kind of reflect a discussion right now. Right? That a lot of the portrayals that we see of men and a lot of the actions that we see of men are not positive. And so there's the perception of what the typical man represents. And this narrative is absolutely being discussed in both direct and indirect ways in our culture, and we're all noticing it. And part of what we're seeing is that men don't know how to react to it. I, I, can, I can testify to that. Men, men don't know how to react based on my own feelings, other conversations I've had with other men. It's a very complex situation and environment. And a majority of men are reacting to it very negatively for a variety of different reasons, right? Because when you have these negative stereotypes and associations that are, are kind of uh, uh, brought alongside this image of the typical man, right, it creates an almost subconscious feeling of, being less than or not being good enough or being the reason for all these problems, right? And so when you, when you have that beginning to kind of take root in this uncertainty, right, you begin to try to cope with it. And what a lot of these studies will point to is that most men bring in adolescent coping mechanisms. It's really interesting that that's a common assessment, is that the way in which men often try to cope with this reality is in a very immature way. Right? There, there's an adolescent coping mechanism that's at place. And so that's one of the ingredients that's going on here, and that's coupled with some other things that we're seeing, which is this increased feeling of loneliness in our country and these problems of isolation. And if you look at any of those studies, those feelings of loneliness and isolation are especially pronounced in middle-aged men. And, and so another study in this Christianity Today article, this one out of New York University, referenced that when you combine these feelings of being less than enough with isolation, it tends to lead to male aggression. And so now you're creating this cycle, right? right? These, these, these men have this narrative that's going on. They don't really know how to handle it, and so they try to fix it by pouring into their jobs, pouring into all these different things, these adolescent coping mechanisms. They don't work. They continue to feel shame. They can feel, continue to feel less than. They feel isolated, and eventually they just get angry, and you just perpetuate the cycle. How many pictures do we see of angry men in our society today? It's everywhere. Because they don't know how to deal with it. They don't know what what they're doing. It just perpetuates this problem, and it reinforces these negative stereotypes. And it's not just in the culture around us. We see it in churches. Numerous examples of men that abuse their power, that that poorly treat the marginalized, right? We, We continually see this image reinforced, And so we need to ask ourselves the question, not just where are the men, but what kind of man are you? And then we need to ask another question is, why are you that kind of man? And part of what we're seeing is that the reason men go through life with these adolescent coping behaviors is because they had no one to teach them. Right, it goes back to one of these common denominators that we frequently reference, fatherless homes. And even if there was a dad In the home, what kind of dad was he? And all the ways that that begins to contribute to these challenges. And so one of the reasons I've been so interested in talking about this is not just because of those observations, but obviously because I'm a dad. And I'm in a season of life where I have been watching my oldest son literally begin to leave behind childhood and enter into the torrents of adolescence and everything that I know that is coming his way. And I feel this overwhelming weight of responsibility to lean into him, to show him what does it mean to be a man and how do you do that and what does that look like? So I've been thinking about it a whole lot, praying about it a whole, I came across a book uh, that really spoke to this, caught my attention because all of this was really on my heart is a book uh, called The Intentional Father, and it was specific for fathers raising sons to help them become the men that that God has designed them to be. It was a really interesting book. It's written by John Tyson, uh, and and I took a lot away from the book. I I found it very helpful and and really interesting insights. I would also offer a disclaimer in case anybody goes out there to buy it. Uh, John Tyson is incredibly extreme in his methods. Uh, he's a little intense for me. I think you could probably dial it down a little bit, John, and and come up with some similar solutions. But overall, it was still a really, really good book with a lot of helpful takeaways. But he speaks at the beginning part of his book to this issue of fatherless homes and the reason it's so problematic. And he references all these different statistics, many of which we've talked about in other sermons before. Let me review a few of them with you. Here's one of the reasons this is so problematic, not just because children don't know exactly how to turn into men, or sons how to turn into men, but just the overall problem for sons and daughters that grow up in fatherless homes. Children without fathers are four four times more likely to live in poverty. They are more likely to suffer emotional and behavioral problems. They have higher levels of aggressive behavior than children born into married homes. They have two times the risk of infant mortality, they're twice as likely to be involved in early sexual activity, and they are more likely to go to prison. Only one in five prison inmates grew up with their father present. 80% of prison inmates had no father in their home. right, so fatherless homes is a massive issue. It's a massive problem. And, And so that's part of it, right? Young boys are trying to enter into manhood with no guide. And so all they really have are these these adolescent coping behaviors, and culture gets a hold of them and wreaks havoc on them. And it creates all these problems. And they're dealing with it in a very immature way. Here's a quote from Tyson's book. Young men, while attempting to self-initiate their way into manhood, are actually carrying their adolescence into adulthood. We're surrounded by adult men who in actuality are nothing more than teenagers, still trying to find their way, hurting and abusing those around them, all while thinking it's some kind of amusing game. He references to so many different characteristics we see in our culture with with men. Look at the rates of teen pregnancy, STDs, violence. Look at the number of young people engaged in self-harm. Look at suicide rates. Look at the rape culture on college campuses, porn, addiction, epidemic, and on and on and on it goes. Because they need fathers. They need godly fathers. So the question is not just where are the men, it's where are the dads? And what kind of dad are you? Right, and so that's one of the questions I really want us to ask this morning. And it really does apply to all of us, if you think about it. Right, maybe, maybe you are a father, and this, this message can immediately apply to where you are in life. Maybe. Your your children are already out of the home, and it allows you to think back on how you were as a father, and maybe now how you can continue to be a father to your grown children or a spiritual father within the church. Maybe as, as a spouse, this helps you think about the sort of father you hope your husband needs to be or that you want to marry or will be someday. Maybe as a child, you can say, this is the sort of father I hope I have or can find or become. I mean, there are all these different ways that this applies to us. And so I don't know exactly where you are in this season of life, but I think we all need to recognize that if we can answer this question correctly, this is a very powerful and effective way for the church to engage in this conversation, right? If the church can foster, cultivate, demonstrate, model what it means to be a loving father, a godly father, how drastically that changes not just the narrative, but life. And not just for children, but for society. This is a hugely important question. And so Tyson gives us a list to consider. What kind of dads are there? What kind of dad are you? What kind of dad are you married to? Or do you hope to find one day? Depending on your situation, right? These are really important questions to ask. And here's here's the list that he offers. Now I added one to this list. Right, but I'll start with the one that I added. But then he gives five additional ones, and as we read through this list, just think through to what extent this might apply to you. We'll start with a more difficult one. But one type of father is the abusive father. This is the father that uh, really has such a problem with doing so much damage to their children. Takes out his frustration, his anger his unhealthy habits on his family, and is arguably one of the most destructive forces on the planet. But maybe it's not that extreme. Maybe you're just the irresponsible father. This is the list that Tyson offers. The irresponsible father has zero involvement with his kids, takes no responsibility, provides no support, is more or less completely unengaged. Maybe you're the ignorant father, And by this, Tyson means you have no idea what you're really doing. You continually wreak havoc in the lives of your children without even realizing it. You don't know really what it means to be a father. You don't really try to learn how to improve. And because of all of this, you end up projecting your own brokenness onto the lives of your children. Then there's the inconsistent father. This father is torn by personal ambition. He has the capability of being better at this fathering thing, but instead prioritizes his own job, career, and hobbies. And these binges of selfishness are often followed by guilt and feeble attempts to fix everything, but there's really no sense of security or identity passed down to his children. The involved father, this is where a lot of us hopefully begin to fall, but even then, it's probably not to the level that it needs to be. The involved father, this type of dad, shows up at sporting events, is available to pick kids up to school, does all the different things, gets a lot of things right, but because of the busyness of life, and the failure to ask the right questions, he never seeks to understand specifically who his children are and why God gave them to him. This is a noble dad, the one who can be haunted by the sense that there is something more, another layer of level in his parenting. And then the one that Tyson is challenging men to respond to, the intentional father. This father is deeply invested in discovering who his children are And how he can help them reach their redemptive potential. Let me add a little note to that. Notice that Tyson says their redemptive potential. Not their athletic potential. Or their academic potential. Or their earning potential. Their redemptive potential their redemptive potential. He seeks to understand the children God has given him and wants to form them into young persons who can fulfill their purpose. He sees parenting as a central call before God and does it with all of his might. This kind of father leaves multi-generational blessing in the lives of his children. That's the sort of dad that we want to be. That's the sort of father that we should aspire to be as men Or within your marriage that you should try to encourage and foster and support in the person that is in your home. That's the depiction of a renewed father. And that's really what we're going to try to unearth a little bit more intentionally by looking at the story of Abraham this morning. And part of what we'll see in Abraham's story are some of these characteristics of an intentional father, of a renewed father, and what that really looks like. And and really, when we walk through all those characteristics, it's, it's a very simple message that is applicable to every single one of us. Whether you're a dad or a mom or a son or a daughter or a friend, whatever role you play, right, we all have something to learn from this challenge. Because ultimately, the renewed dad, the renewed father, the intentional father, however you want to describe it, points us back to Jesus, right, and demonstrates in every single way of his life what it means to know and believe that the Lord God has provided salvation. And that's what we're going to see with Abraham's testimony. So if you're in Genesis 22, we'll follow along in one of these most dramatic stories that you have in the Old Testament. And with it, we get a really interesting snapshot of Abraham and his son, Isaac. As you recall last week, we saw that God had been faithful to Abraham and Sarah. He had given them their son Isaac, and and they were able to celebrate that with Sarah's uh, testimony into motherhood and the graciousness of God and the joy that she was experiencing through that gift. And now we get to Genesis 22, and the attention attention shifts towards Abraham. And in this, we get a wonderful story about what it means to be a godly father. We're going to read through the first 18 verses of chapter 22. It says, sometime later, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Well, early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, and when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught in its horns. He went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through their offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And what a powerful story. And one that I would say we could spend the rest of the year here, I'm not going to do that to you, Uh, but I would, I mean, we could really just dive in because this story is so rich with so many different things that we could apply and learn for our own lives. Here's here's where I want to begin. Before we get into the characteristics that are applied here to Abraham as a father, let's just notice the tone that is set with this story when it says sometime later, and we don't know how long, right, we don't know how old Isaac is or Abraham is at this point, But sometime later, God tested Abraham. The whole story is a test. That's what it's about, God testing Abraham. Now that word test means to determine and examine the true nature of something. What God is after here is what is the true nature of Abraham? Let's really see what he's made of. Let's see what sort of man, what sort of father he really is. Now, there are certain nuances to that term that can really be applied to this story, where it's not just I'm trying to determine the true nature of something, but I'm actually trying to refine someone so that they more closely walk in the ways of God. And that's absolutely what God is doing here. He's not just trying to be hard on Abraham. He's not just trying to see who he is and what he's made out of. He's really trying to determine... Can I refine you and shape you and mold you in a way that allows you to walk more closely in the ways of God? It's a, it's a beautiful story about God's calling. Right? I, I love the different things that we can see about how God calls us. Because God calls Abraham and knows the entire time he's not going to actually make him go through with it. Right? He knows that's not what is going to actually happen, but he still tells him to do it. Right? And it's almost as if God says, I have all this stuff in store for you. I have all these things that I'm gonna to entrust to you, but I need to know that you're ready. And it's not till you go through this journey that you can be refined and shaped and molded, then I see you walk through this journey that then I can be like, now you're ready. Now I can really prepare you for what's next, which should remind us the importance of the journey. A lot of times we get so focused on the destination and the details of where God's leading and what it's gonna look like. And the reality is, he just wants to know, are you gonna be faithful in the process? If you just take the next step and demonstrate that sort of faithfulness, well, then I will refine you in a way that allows you to walk more closely in my ways. And it's a beautiful part of God's call is for us to demonstrate that faithfulness in the journey. But the other thing that we need to recognize with the way that this story is is established and the way the tone is set Is this understanding that you will be tested? All of us, not just dads, not just moms, not just children, we will all be tested. That is a reality to life, right? And the challenge for us is that a lot of times when we go through those seasons of testing, right, we see them as punishment. We see it as unfair. We see it as unjust. We see it as a problem. We see it as a burden rather than an opportunity to be shaped and molded and refined. By our creator. And so whatever season of testing that you're in, be willing to embrace that journey and recognize that it is an opportunity to be refined, to walk more closely in the ways of God. Right. So make no mistake though, this is a test for Abraham and that sets the tone. And so what do we find out about Abraham? Well, again, all these characteristics can apply to any of us, but they are especially important for fathers. Right, the first thing that we see that I would point out to you uh, this morning is a relationship that Abraham has with God in a readiness that is built upon that relationship. Right? It's subtle. It, it's, it's almost uh, subliminal. Right? It's just this little exchange where God calls out to Abraham, Abraham, and the response is, here I am. Right? Abraham knows the voice of God. He's listening for the voice of God, and he's ready when the voice of God speaks. And that's a great example for all the fathers in this room. Do you know the voice of God? Are you ready when it speaks? I mean, that's really what that response demonstrates, doesn't it? That that response of here I am. I mean, I know for me a lot of times when I'm at home and I'm I'm caught up with a chore or I'm tired and I'm just scrolling through, you know, a news feed on Twitter or whatever it is, and the next thing you know, you hear a voice in the other room from your child, from a spouse or something. And there are so many times where I'm like, you know, I'm just going to pretend like I didn't hear that pretty tired right now, right? Or maybe I actually don't hear it because I'm so engrossed in whatever it is that I'm doing, right? We all know that. But it's when we stop acting that way and we respond with, yes, here I am, that we're demonstrating to whoever's called to us, I'm here, I'm ready. That's what Abraham's doing, right? He's demonstrating readiness with that simple response. How many times as fathers do we ignore the voice of God? Because we're preoccupied with whatever else. Right? We're caught up in whatever else our interests are, our, our, in, our, our passions, our hobbies, our, our careers. And so we're either ignoring the voice of God or we legitimately don't hear it because we're so consumed with other things. A man of God, a godly father listens to the voice of God and is ready to respond, here I am. And he demonstrates that readiness. It's one of the first characteristics that we see from Abraham. Abraham. And as he responds with that readiness, we see another tremendous uh, kind of plot development in this story, because now God explains, well, here's what I'm asking of you. I'm going to ask that you take your one and only son, the one that you love, Isaac, and offer him as a sacrifice on the mountain that I'm going to show you. What an incredible request. One that, honestly, we can't relate to, no matter how hard we try. It's, it's It's so foreign to us. It's very difficult for us to get our minds wrapped around this sort of request. But we need to remember that this is exactly one of the primary relationships that existed between humanity and God at this point in, in history, right? That, that sacrifice was always one of those fundamental expressions of worship. You, you can make an argument that that was actually seen even in the garden, with Adam and Eve, when, when an animal was killed to give them coverings for their, for their shame, right? That, that possibly there is an animal was sacrificed is the first sacrifice that shows us the shedding of blood to cover shame. But even if it's not explicitly stated there, you can also see it with Cain and Abel. You see it referenced with, with Noah building altars. Like from the very beginning, one of the primary ways that we responded in relationship with God was with sacrifice. And that sacrifice was taking something precious to you whether it was crops, whether it was animals, something of significant value in offering it to the Lord. And so what God has done here is he has demonstrated that sort of request by saying, give me your most precious possession, not a crop, not an animal, your son. How much do you love me is what God really wants to know. Right? And, and this is the request that comes To Abraham. And I would love to know how he initially responded. We don't know. It's not not listed in there. We we don't really know. I mean, did did he did he argue with God? Was he angry? Did he try to barter with him? Did did he weep? Did he wail? Did he tell Sarah? Did he keep it a secret? Did he try to hide it from her? If he did tell her, how did she respond? Did she argue with him? Did they get in a fight? Did they weep together? Were they able to sleep at all that first night? We have no idea. Here's what we do know. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and obeyed. (laughs) So whatever his initial response was, it didn't take long for him to obey. There there was no stalling, right? There, There was none of this, well, I think he said it. I'm gonna wait for him to confirm it Right, let's see if God sends me a dream or a burning bush or a flood or a whale. God's like, man, I've already done all those and they're not for you. Right, he doesn't try to kick the can down the road and say, well, let's, let's see if God really confirms this a little bit. There's no hesitation. He responds with an immediacy in his obedience early the next morning. And he doesn't make excuses. I love the methodical nature with which this story is told. Right, he gets up, he prepares all the supplies. He gets his servants, he gets his donkey. The one that really stands out to me, he cuts the firewood himself. I would have woken up and been like, sorry God, there's no wood. Man, like, some point we'll get around to it. He was so determined, so focused, so committed, so obedient. And yet I want us to really think about not just the immediacy of his obedience, but that this was courageous obedience. Right? I mean, he is being asked to sacrifice his son, right? We know that that had to have feelings of tremendous anguish, uh, tremendous feelings of, of angst and sadness and grief, all these different things that were likely accompanying Abraham, and yet he still went through it. He still was willing to take it on. He was still willing to offer that level of devotion to his God, demonstrating that I love God, yes, even more than family, even more than my most precious possession and how significant of a statement that really was, right? And you see, you see him offer that and you think about the extent of his devotion to demonstrate that and how incredible it was and you have to ask yourself, why? Why is he willing to do that? And part of what we see is that he references it later when he says, well, I'm going to take the boy and go worship. And the reason is, is because he sees this as worship. He understands the worth of his creator, that it is greater than anything else that he could possess, and in that, that creator deserves to be worshiped. And therein lies one of the problems that we see with, with fathers that don't live into this, this calling of renewal and this cod, calling of godliness is that a lot of times what you see modeled in the home nowadays is half-hearted worship from a father, infrequent worship, hard-to-come-to-Sunday worship. Abraham is all in because he knows the worth of his creator, and he's gonna model that. This is not just obedience. This is courageous obedience because all of us can stop and really think about what that looks like when we apply it to our own lives, And it is hard to live a life that demonstrates I love God more than anything else. It's hard to live a life to show that I love God more than I love my job, more than I love money, more than I love my family. That's real courage. And that's exactly what Abraham emulated, courageous obedience. Now, the other thing that goes along with this readiness and this courageous obedience, the other thing that has always stood out to me about this story is where it takes place. God sends Abraham to the region of Moriah. And what you notice later is that it took three days to get there. And that's always stood out to me because it's not like God said to Abraham, hey, just go out back. Right, just, just go out to the back of the house and, and build an altar there. He sends him on a journey, a long journey, a journey that requires preparing Uh, materials and equipment and goods, and and then it takes three days to get there. And so imagine the things that Abraham is feeling. Imagine the angst, imagine the worry, imagine the, the burden. He has to carry this burden day after day after day. And he continues. It's an incredible expression of faith. And specifically, what I would accentuate is that it's sustained faith. That's another great characteristic of a godly man and a godly father. They demonstrate a sustained faith that can walk through those difficult burdens that you have to carry. Sometimes it's easy to be faithful in a moment, right? Sometimes almost instinctively, well, yeah, I reacted the right way in that one moment. It was momentary, it was fleeting, it was temporary, and I got it right. But what about those journeys that take time? What about that sustained faith that has to get you to get through cancer or to get through a divorce or to get through losing a job or or to get through uh, an estranged relationship with a family member to get you through any sort of grief, any, any sort of trial and circumstance? That's sustained faith. Sometimes those are the journeys that God sends us on. I'm not looking for you just to be faithful for a moment. Can you sustain it? Can you continue? See, See, nobody is going to expect a father to be perfect. Dads are going to falter. They're going to make mistakes. But what we want to aspire to is an unwavering faith, a sustained faith that allows us to go through whatever journey God has placed before us and to carry those burdens, always knowing that we can continue to demonstrate that we choose him above all else, which is really where this this conversation takes a turn right part of what's so compelling about it is that we don't really know what Abraham is thinking right we, we don't know how he's processing all of this all we can do is put ourselves in the story and imagine what it must have felt like and I think it's only natural to assume that this was incredibly difficult for him to even begin to consider having to sacrifice his son but we don't know silence through the whole journey, until finally that silence is broken by his son Isaac. And it's broken in such a profound way because it reminds us of the significance of what's taking place. Isaac says, Father. And Abraham says, Yes, my son. And just that brief exchange tugs at my heart again. This is about a father and a son. And we're reminded of that relationship. And Isaac is starting to put it together. Father, we see we see the wood. We have all these other things, but where's the lamb? And that's the chilling question that Abraham has probably been fearing the whole time. And so now we see exactly how Abram has been processing this by the answer that he offers Isaac. He says, the Lord will provide. What a beautiful response. And I don't think it negates or takes away the fact that he was absolutely anguished and and overwhelmed and burdened with the reality of this request and the reality of having to go and and engage in this sort of sacrifice of his one and only son. But I do think it also gives us a glimpse, right? It gives us an insight to how he has processed it. And this is a different sort of Abraham. This is not the same Abraham that is going to... to, Tell the Egyptians, no, my wife is actually my sister. This isn't the same sort of Abraham that's going to acquiesce his wife's request to sleep with her servant. This isn't the same sort of Abraham that's going to laugh when he hears that God's going to provide him a son. This is now a renewed Abraham with an incredible confidence in the Lord. Is he worried? Is he anguished? Absolutely. But he is confident the Lord will provide. And because he is confident, he's using this moment to teach his son. (laughs) He brings him into the lesson, really. Don't worry, son. The Lord will provide. And he trusts him. He's he's using this as an opportunity to recognize, my, my son has to see and know that God provides for his people. And he demonstrates that unwavering confidence. And if we ever wonder to the extent to which Abraham actually believed this, then just turn to Hebrews 11, where it's described that what Abraham had done in this moment, it has reasoned in his mind that God would even bring Isaac back from the dead. So if we're wondering, would he go through with it? The answer is yes, because he so believed in the Lord's provision and had such confidence that even if God had made him go through with it, that God would raise his son from the dead. That's what it tells us in Hebrews 11. That's the sort of confidence that Abraham is demonstrating here. So look at these characteristics that Abraham provides for us, that all men, all dads, and really all of us should aspire to. A readiness built upon the relationship with God. A courageous obedience, a sustained faith, and a confidence in the Lord's provision. It's a remarkable expression of what it means to be a godly father. And Lord knows we need more of But what really begins to bring this story to such a beautiful conclusion where I want us to kind of end our time is to then see how God remains faithful and does indeed provide. It's the most dramatic part of the story. Right now that we see how Abraham is processing it all, now it's the moment of truth. The altar is built. The wood is arranged. And he binds his son. I've often wondered what this part looked like. How do you see it unfolding? You ever thought about that? I've often pictured it in different ways. Sometimes I picture Abraham and Isaac having come to terms with what was about to happen. That Isaac understood in some weird way and trusted his dad. And Abraham's faith had fully taken over and there was just this complicit nature in both of them kind of an eerie quietness and a discernible peace as he just obediently laid on the altar and prepared for his father to follow through. And then sometimes I picture the other extreme, chaos. Right? Like Isaac fighting back against his dad eyes filled with tears, saying, Dad, what are you doing? Don't do this. You can't do this to me. And Abraham struggling, fighting back tears as well, saying, I'm sorry, son. I have to, as he forcibly binds his son and throws him on the wood. I wonder what it was like. And really, anything in between those two is worthy of consideration because I think what it really teaches us is that whether we're in seasons of peace or chaos, the Lord's provision always comes at just the right time and in just the right way. It's not always really contingent upon our emotions, but his plan. But as that moment finally arrives and Abraham grabs the knife and begins to prepare to slay his son, the angel calls out and says, Abraham, Abraham, don't touch the boy. For now I see. Right? The test is complete. I see what's been revealed in you. You have been refined because we've seen your readiness, your courageous obedience, your sustained faith, your willingness to worship, your incredible confidence in the Lord, so much so that you haven't even withheld your only son. And all of a sudden, a ram appears in the thicket, and the Lord provides. And then you hear the affirmation of the blessing that has really charted Abraham's course from the beginning. And what stands out to me is that this is probably the first time that Isaac hears it as a son. Understanding this plan that is in place not just for his father but for their family and his place within it. And all this this example that his father has demonstrated for him is a legacy that now he is going to have to carry one day because God has a plan and they have to be faithful to it. I need to think about this incredible opportunity for Isaac now because of his father's obedience to fully see and personally know, yes, the Lord has provided and the way in which that solidified them in their family. And therein lies the chief example for us that I would love for us to leave with today, right? If you think about what it all points to is that there is this undeniable imagery in this story that points to the gospel. I mean, you could point to it a thousand different ways from this story, right? A loving father willing to sacrifice his son as a substitute for his sin Right, the substitute of the ram being provided for Isaac's place, the substitute to take the sins of the father, to take the sins of the world in order to shed this blood so that others can find grace and that God has provided a way through Jesus. This is a story that brings us back to the gospel time and time again, no matter how you look at it. And that, to me, is really the main point of being a godly man and a godly father. Really, just being a godly follower. Right, That no matter how we walk through these seasons in life, these moments of testing, that if we can demonstrate these same characteristics of readiness, of courageous obedience, of sustained faith and confidence, we will be able to continually remind one another in our homes and in our friendships that the Lord has provided a way of salvation. And that's the message that we need to constantly declare. That is the chief message we are entrusted with as men, as fathers, as mothers, and children. And one of my favorite things to do as a father is to sing over my kids. And I know that's just a brief window of my life. Someday that will no longer be an opportunity for me. But right now, it's such a sacred and precious time. the end of their day, when they're emotions are trying to be brought down and they're trying to draw an end to everything that they've experienced that day. To go in and to bring them into that place of peace and comfort by singing over them. And there are a lot of different songs that I I sing over them. One that I choose is, from time to time, is a song that my dad wrote and sang over me and my sister. And I sing it to them and, and I often think how neat it is that I'm able to pass on this song that was sung over me. And I don't know what's in store for my children's futures. I don't, I don't know if they're going to grow up and get married and have kids. But if they do, I like to think that maybe, just maybe, they'll sing this song over them too. They'll sing this same song over their kids. And it really will pass from one generation to the next. How powerful that is. And I think that's such a great metaphor. That's what we're supposed to do as fathers, as parents, as believers, to teach the next generation a song to sing. And so, what song are you teaching others to sing? My hope is that as the church, our voices rise together and in our homes in our relationships in our families the world sees good godly fathers good godly mothers children and brothers and sisters declaring to one another that our god is mighty to save there's no one like him nothing else like him nothing can compare nothing in this world that i'm going to hold to more tightly than i'm going to hold to my creator because he is rich in love, abounding in compassion. He gives us purpose. He gives us meaning. He gives us significance. And more than anything, he gives us grace. The debt that I deserve to pay has been paid by Christ on my behalf. And by Christ, this victory has been won. The song that we sing in our homes and in our lives is that the Lord has provided. He is our salvation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, help us to sing this song. Help us to declare it to one another. Help us to sing it as dads. Help us to sing it as moms. Help us to sing it in our marriages, in our parenting, as children. God, as a church, as a family. Father, that each and every one of us that are here today, we would be able to approach the throne room of grace with the readiness to hear your voice and respond with courageous obedience. God, help us to to sustain our faith, no matter what journey you have put put us upon, God, that if we have to walk day after day with a burden, with a struggle, with a testing, let us do so faithfully and courageously. Let us have a confidence in your provision. Let us have an unwavering trust in your plans so that we can once again declare for all to hear and to know that you are our salvation that there is no one like you. Father, this is the cry of our hearts. May this be the praise that we offer to one another and to you this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.